Just a quick bit of housekeeping before we start the episode. Uh, I'd like for everybody to visit my website, which is alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com. And you can check out all my links there to my Instagram, to my YouTube, to my Etsy store, where I have t-shirts, promotional t-shirts, 12 to be exact. Those shirts are selling for $10. I can convert those. I can actually make you a hoodie for the same price. Shoot me an email at alphamalebuddhistgmail.com, and I will make that into a hoodie for you. Also, you know, give me some good reviews if you can, if you're getting something from the show. Put up a good review on whatever iTunes or wherever you're listening. Welcome back to episode 100 of the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. Episode 100. It's been an amazing process from the beginning. I remember when I did episode one, uh, I did five, I think I did five episodes that day. They were like 10 minutes each. They're actually pretty good episodes. I got, got into point of diminishing returns and such, the void, some real interesting concepts, photon of light, you know, light and dark and the whole, you know, the yin and yang thing. So especially for people that are kind of newer to this uh, knowledge and spirituality, episodes one through five are really good to go through. And life strategy also. I put It's very dense, those first few episodes. But anyway, finally getting to episode 100. Uh, this is going to be like my second episode today. I did something earlier today with Dr. Bruce Lipton and another one. So, yeah, just, uh, I've been really busy with work and just a lot of things happening at home, just, you know, day-to-day stuff, but been really wrapped down tight and busy. Uh, and again, with, uh, you know, my, my wife having family issue. So that's another thing that, you know, kind of slowed me down a bit. So episode 100, what, what we're going to get into right now is we're going to listen to, and this is something that I did in, in eight parts back in like episode 30 or something. It's called Magical Egypt. That's just the audio. I'm going to actually have the video on this. I believe I'm going to do episode one and two. Uh, It's going to be up on the screen. So again, if you're listening on the podcast, I recommend listen to it, sure. But when you get a chance, check it out on YouTube so that you'll see the actual video that accompanies this. And this is John Anthony West's Magical Egypt, eight-part series. The first episode is basically just an introduction as to what he does, John Anthony West does. And what he does is he's a, what's the term he uses? A symbolist scientist or something like that. I mean, he gets into the symbology of ancient Egypt. He's nothing short of amazing. This is, this might be the best documentary that I've seen on Egypt like real shit Egypt, like the, the mystery and the the symbology, just the denseness of, of this whole series I recommend. I believe I'm going to be able to get episode one and two on. It's a total of eight. I did buy the series online. I bought it from his website a couple of years ago. I recommend you do the same if you're into this, if you if you enjoy this and you get something out of it. So, yeah, again, this is episode 100. It's I recommend people out there, if you have stuff on your mind or stuff to contribute to give back, to um, to teach people and, and to encourage and empower other people. If you have that gift, you know, you might want to give yourself a shot and, and, and 
do the podcast, you know, um, I'm not a genius on it, but I'm pretty proficient. I, I recommend that you learn Audacity. It's free. It's a sound editing thing. I mean, depending on what degree you want to get into the podcasting, some people just want to throw the MP3 up with the dialogue and that's it, which is cool. Uh, but if you want to get a little more fancy and put some clips in and, you know, some effects and really, really parse and manipulate the data, then you got to get into Audacity, which is, I, I mess with the Audacity. I've been using it all along. This is, like I said, a new thing I'm doing with the camcorder and the mic, the road mic that I have um, to add the video element to this so that I can build up the YouTube platform and the podcasting platform. So... Without any further ado, we're going to get into this Magical Egypt, Episode 1, John Anthony West. This is fair use, Creative Commons license. So, let's, yeah man, let's get into this real quick. Let me, let me click this up here. Get the volumes right. Amazing series, amazing. Check this shit out. Check it out. That is the man right there, John Anthony West. There are two different stories told about this same land. Two different histories, almost as if there were two Egypts. This ancient land has always partaken of a dual nature. The public face of Egypt is known the world over and told in every history book. But there is another side of Egypt that is not so widely known. Egypt is also a land of secrets. Another history, a secret history, tells of Egypt as the inheritor of deep wisdom and magical ability from an even earlier culture. It is the account of the Egyptians themselves. This alternate history is echoed by parallel accounts from the myth and history of other ancient cultures as well as myriad secret societies and occult sources. The remarkable number of parallels in these stories provides a unique window into this other Egypt. In this series, we will take a look at the shadowy history and magical practices of this other Egypt. Egypt is the keeper of secrets. The land of riddles. 
the birthplace of magic and the home of the mystery schools. As we join symbolist author and Egyptologist John Anthony West for a symbolist tour of magical Egypt, we will explore not only the sacred sites, but the ancient teachings that lie concealed there. We will see the ancient mysteries through a decoding lens a cipher that brings the lost magic to life and returns to humanity the teachings and magic of our ancestors. I think it's impossible to say that Egypt regarded the entire universe as, as an act of, a gigantic act of magic, um, the transformation of consciousness into the material universe. Did ancient Egypt inherit its mysterious abilities from an even older culture, lost to history and forgotten by the modern world? civilization is generally considered to be the product of Greek and Roman culture. The Greeks and Romans both acknowledge ancient Egypt as the source of great ancient wisdom. A mysterious land of riddles whose secrets were considered the highest prize to some of the greatest minds in history. Egypt was known to the ancient world as a repository of high knowledge and magical practices. These universal secrets were contained and kept alive in the mystery schools. The teachings and magical ability they imparted were held in the highest secrecy and reverence. Entrance to the temples that held the secrets was tightly restricted. They were the domain of royalty, priests, and privileged initiates. Forefathers of modern thought, such as Pythagoras, Plato, and others, tell of waiting more than 20 years preparing before acceptance into the mystery schools. The secret teachings were known as esoteric or occult or symbolist teachings and were held to contain the secrets of the universe and the keys to great magic. Those who were allowed to receive the mysteries often went on to join a who's who of historical movers and shakers. Pythagoras, Plato, Aristotle, Galileo, Copernicus, Da Vinci, Kepler, Isaac Newton, Napoleon. 
They were rewarded for their pursuit of the ancient wisdom with not just knowledge, but a new way of thinking that allowed them to write their names in human history. Hermeticism and the writings from the Hermetica were held to be the Western retelling of the wisdom from the mystery schools. They contained, albeit in a degenerated form, strains of the ancient wisdom said to have been passed down from the gods. There are fragmentary Hermetic texts um, dating from, dates of dispute, but dating from 3rd, 2nd, 1st centuries AD, in which the language and mode of expression is ancient Greek, but the subject matter is, if not entirely, largely derived from or actually uh, uh, a part of the ancient Egyptian doctrine of the transformation of the soul. This is the basis of the Hermetic belief and it then proliferates into those various disciplines, arises, uh, is, is, is practiced in one form or another in, throughout Islam, uh, percolates up into Western Europe in the Italian Renaissance and then occupies much of the minds and hearts and studies of the of, of major Renaissance figures up to and including Isaac Newton who actually spent much more time of his life studying alchemy and number symbolism than he did studying what would now be uh, modern science. This is a, an acknowledged fact that is seldom acknowledged by modern scientists but as a matter of fact um, Newton might be called um, not one of the last, certainly, but um, one of the most eminent of the Hermeticists. Although today, in much of the Western academic world, the symbolist interpretation of ancient Egypt is vigorously opposed, in its ancestral form it was the object of great fascination, and in some cases obsession, with some of the greatest minds and forces in human history. The term mystery schools refers not to a specific place or time in ancient Egypt, but the timeless teachings passed down through word of mouth, encrypted into the temples, concealed and enshrined behind a veil of hieroglyphs and symbolism. What secrets were held in the mystery schools that made them so important, so sought after? One of the secrets was an alternate history of human past that is cyclical. Civilization, consciousness, understanding and ability, rising to incredible heights in the distant past and then falling back into barbarism again and again, like the waves of high and low tides. This story has resonance in all cultures in the stories of the flood or the periodic catastrophes from many ancient myths. In this alternative model of our past, a vast accumulation of knowledge and ability was inherited from previous epochs. The legacy of high wisdom from an incredibly distant past is the source of the mysteriously powerful and unexplained accomplishments of the ancients. Accomplishments which even by today's standards seem in scope and operation to be nothing short of feats of magic.
Ancient Egypt wielded a mastery over the material world that bordered on the supernatural. It seemed at times almost alien. Its art and architecture showing not only an understanding, but an eerie control of the invisible forces and building blocks of our material world. Rightly considered powerful and dangerous tool, it was guarded with the utmost secrecy. Some priests accepted death before divulging the secrets to conquering Roman usurper pharaohs. <clears throat> Where did they learn the science behind these incredible acts? And stranger still, how could these abilities just appear seemingly complete at the very beginnings of Egyptian history? Where did the knowledge come from? The Egyptians, both ancient and modern, remain curiously silent on this topic. Egypt seems to have started out at its height and gradually declined. Like a copy of a copy of a copy. Over the centuries, the mysteries held a little less with each successive retelling. In an attempt to guard the magic from abuse at the hands of the profane public, the mystery schools went into hiding. The ancient secrets were shrouded in allegory and symbol and placed under the guardianship of various streams of initiatic societies. In time, it appeared that many, if not all, connections to the original source were severed or so diluted that the true mysteries were lost to history. Over the millennia, the temples fell into ruin and eventually so did the teachings they enshrined. All hope of reconnection to the wisdom of the past seemed lost. When we return, we look at an unusual man who returned to the modern world the teachings and wisdom of the ancient mystery schools. The secrets of the mystery school seemed lost to history when in 1937 a most unusual man again reopened a window into this culture and the magical technology that was its legacy. R.A. Schwaladulubis was a latter-day alchemist as well as an accomplished mathematician, chemist, author and philosopher. Schwala opened a window into the lost magic and mentality of the ancients. Through an ingenious reinterpretation of the evidence, Shwala recreated a model of ancient Egypt that resurrects the ancient secrets for modern eyes. Understanding the mentality of the ancient world through the decoding lens of symbolism, Shwala showed the Egyptians were not the superstitious savages modern Western academic thought holds them to have been. Instead, he showed example after example of high wisdom and accomplishment, not only equaling that of modern science, but in some instances, far surpassing modern abilities. The key that unlocked the ancient veil lie in a slight change of perspective, of mindset. As one learns to enter the mindset of Pharaonic Egypt, the cryptic message from the past comes to life and allows access to previously invisible and unimagined realms of consciousness understanding and ability. The crux of the old teachings was contained and transmitted through what Schwala called sacred science. 
Sacred science was the original unified source of the myriad streams of modern mysticism, occultism, esotericism, and magical disciplines that exist today. It is also the unified source for such diverse contemporary sciences as chemistry, physical science, philosophy, medicine, astronomy, geometry, architecture, music, and mathematics. Through the linchpin of sacred sciences, Schwaller not only showed an original unity of the material sciences, but even shed new light on such shadowy subjects as the tarot, astrology, and many, many other forms of magic. Schwaller spent over a decade alongside at Luxor Temple, which would come to be known as the Temple of Man. It was here that he performed his master work. Hollande, a Renaissance man. He was born in the 1890s, died in the early 1960s, and was, among other things, a practicing Latter-day Alchemist, um, and very much deeply involved in alchemy. He was also thoroughly conversant with the esoteric and mystical traditions of the East, and at the same time, equally conversant and familiar with the modern developments in science, mathematics, physics, and so on. It was Schwaller who, in two decades of work in Egypt, mainly at the Temple of Luxor, um, who reformulated in transmittable and accessible fashion the wisdom of the ancients. It is through Schwaller that we're able, for the first time, to actually gain access to the doctrine, the the, the, the sacred science or sacred sciences responsible for those astonishing resonating temples, pyramids, and tombs. Prior to Schwaller, there was a long-standing tradition dating back to the Greeks themselves, in which ancient Egypt was the fount of all wisdom, which subsequently degenerated and, and dispersed over time. Uh, but prior to Schwaller, it was impossible to actually argue from documented evidence that this was indeed the case. Schwaller provides the documentation in impeccable form. It's there to be disproved if anyone can do so. In the 50 years since Schwaller produced the body of his work, um, a number of scholars have um, abused him roundly, but none have actually offered anything resembling satisfactory disproof or discredit to his extraordinary works. In its own way, the Temple of Man was a kind of Rosetta Stone. It contained the means within itself, Schwaller, to decode and reconstruct the layers and subtleties of the symbolic and sacred technology of the ancient mysteries. Schwaller showed that the temple was not just the location of the teaching, but was itself the teaching. Hieroglyphics and harmonic proportions contained a catalogue of the occult laws, sacred geometry, and archetypal forces that combined to make the universe at its culmination living man. Through a chain of analogies, occult correspondences, sacred geometry, and symbolism, the temple itself becomes the actual technology through which one can undergo the initiation process and begin to experience the mentality and magic of the ancients. The temple echoes and amplifies the great arcanum, 
as above, so below. Man and the cosmos can be seen to be magically analogous, governed by the same rules of sacred geometry, each an octave of the other. After Schwanner's death, the torch was picked up by a new generation of symbolists, one of the most venerated of whom is John Anthony West. West brought the obscure French work to the public eye in the symbolist classic, Serpent in the Sky. West not only rekindled Schwanner's revelations, but built upon them in a manner that acted like a fulcrum, upsetting the stoic worlds of archaeology, theology, and science. When Serpent was published, shockwaves erupted, as evidence that lay in full view of all of the very site of the Great Sphinx exploded. An observation by Schwaller, mentioned in passing, caught West's attention. Schwaller noticed and recorded the fact that vertical fissures cut deep into the walls of the Sphinx enclosure, these vertical fissures were unmistakable signs of precipitation-induced erosion. They were the telltale sign of exposure to years and years of rain. But it hasn't rained to any considerable extent in the Sahara Desert since before the Ice Age. It seems to suggest that the Sphinx was there prior to those catastrophic events that put the rest of the civilization down. West enlisted the help of geologist Robert Schock to present a revised model of Egyptian history based on geological data, including the evidence that suggests that this man-made structure shows signs of exposure to weather conditions that haven't been present since the harsh end of the last ice age. Could this be proof that the Sphinx, or at least the Sphinx enclosure, was the product of an even older civilization? predating the catastrophic events at the end of the last ice age? We believe that our Sphinx theory, the water weathering of the Sphinx, is evidence of those of that earlier civilization. And there are other bits and pieces of geological evidence and architectural evidence that we believe supports the theory of an advanced, or let us say again within, carefully within inverted quotes, an Atlantean civilization. But this is the big issue, whether or not there was such a civilization. We have, of course, on the textual side, we have Plato's account of Atlantis that supposedly came to him from his grandfather Solon, who himself got it from an Egyptian priest. This would be somewhere around 6th or 7th centuries BC, somewhere that kind of area. And of course, we also have throughout the world, around the world, everywhere, in the higher or more sophisticated civilizations as well as in the mythologies and legends of widely separated uh, traditional societies, we have accounts, virtually all of them have accounts of a deluge. A deluge is a, is a, is a commonplace and in many of them, if not in all, there are also references to vanished civilizations, vanished high levels of civilization, golden ages in the past and the ubiquity of these stories is enough to make, I would believe, any serious scholar at least hold an open mind to the possibility that these advanced civilizations did indeed exist and that they did indeed go down or disappear virtually entirely under the, catast under the catastrophic conditions prevailing for several thousands of years following the 
event, whatever it may have been, or events that uh, initiated the, the, the melting of the ice and the dissolution of the last ice age. As we join West for a symbolist tour of Egypt, we begin to glimpse the magic and mystery still waiting here. Encoded into the ruins are the preserved seeds of a technology and mentality that by comparison to even modern standards are at the far edge of comprehension. When we return, another secret of the Egyptian mysteries. One of the most famous of the students of the mystery schools is the legendary Pythagoras. Pythagoras waited and prepared for 20 years before his initiation into this science of the invisible. He went on to start a revolution in thinking when he revealed to the profane world another secret of the Egyptian mysteries. In the simple and irrefutable science of geometry lie the secrets of the universe and of life itself. Pythagoras returned the lost key of meaning to the alchemical maxim, as above, so below. The universe and man as the embodiment of the universe live and work by the same rules, are brought into and out of existence by the same forces and are both subject to the same laws. Each can be understood using the same maps. The shapes and forces described by a sacred geometry are the roadmap perhaps even the seed of life itself. In the design of the Temple of Karnak, we observed firsthand the sacred geometry that was the source of Pythagoras' inspiration. The invisible science of the ancients was preserved and at the same time veiled behind the symbolism and measure of the temple. The temple itself was the embodiment of the ancient teaching of the mystery schools. Its living walls enshrine and forever teach an understanding of the deep secrets of creation. Its sacred geometry enshrines and mirrors the fundamental geometric laws that are the working schematics of the created universe and life within it. The temple is consecrated to Amun the Invisible, the animator of form, the breath of life across the waters. The temple is the house of Amun. For a time, it was the living body of Amun. Over the 500 year span of its active life, the temple lived and grew by the same laws of sacred geometry that govern organic life and growth. It was for a time animated by the voice of life. It was host to Amun. The temple incorporates an archetypal or natural geometry that lies behind all of life. This geometry is a result of a mysterious number pattern that occurs throughout nature, known to the modern world as the Fibonacci series. The invisible voice of life shows itself in the material world through an interplay of numbers and form. These primal archetypal forms are the template and seeds of life. The sacred geometry expressed in the Fibonacci series allows us to clearly see this invisible other world 
that is the mysterious source of life. To better understand the role of the Fibonacci series and organic geometry in the world around us, we met with Michael Schneider, author of A Beginner's Guide to Constructing the Universe. Michael demonstrates the dynamic presence of the Fibonacci sequence in the living, growing world. Well, the Fibonacci numbers refers to a sequence of numbers that grow by continual expansion, but a very special balance growth expansion and the mathematical definition of them really is an archetypal pattern starts off with the numbers zero and one zero sort of acts like a seed in a sense zero and one and the rule is that each next term is the sum of the two previous terms so zero plus one make one one plus one make two one plus two make three two and three make five three and five make eight 13, 21, 34, 55, 89, 144, 233, and endless. But it's an expansive pattern that shows organic growth patterns that occur all through nature. The invisible Fibonacci spiral shows itself in the visible world, in the nautilus shell, the sunflower, and the branching of trees. This mathematical sequence charts nature's progress of organic spiraling growth through self-accumulation. The appearance of this sequence, embodied by the Fibonacci spiral or golden spiral in plants, animals, or solar systems, tells us that the Fibonacci sequence and phi ratio underlie an internal harmony, excellence, and dynamic balance during the inevitable growth and dissolution processes. It is the play of life itself, clothed in the four states of matter. These characteristics are the open secret of balance of animal horns, seashells, plants, and galaxies. For example, as the chambered nautilus creature grows larger, the gland that exudes shell material also grows, building a widening shell. The shell's golden spiral shape maintains the same center of gravity at any size, so the nautilus need not relearn how to balance itself as it matures. The same is true for the growing horns of a ram. As the one material accumulates, growing larger and more massive, its golden spiral shape maintains the same center of gravity. Thus, the ram need not adjust its posture throughout life to uphold its growing horns. Similarly, the tree that puts out branches and leaves and spiral staircases up and around their respective trunks can get enormously large, yet the tree always balances, no matter how massive and complex it grows to be. And so any kind of organic expansion will benefit from this kind of growth that incorporates balance, physical balance, uh, it will pack the most seeds in the least space. Uh, and whenever you find these Fibonacci numbers, you also find spirals. And the benefit of the spiral is, of course, organic, expansive growth in a, in, in a kind of a fashion that will also maximize uh, all the benefits of the seed properties and so forth. The way they show up in the uh, plant world, the plant world is rife with these numbers. Uh, for example, in this artichoke flower, I will simply, let's see, 
I'll draw a, uh, a mark so we know where we started on this. And I'll count this row of petals as one row. And what I'm going to do is count the numbers of parallel rows of petals. So there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and then back to the beginning. So there are eight rows leaning in this direction. But each petal plays a role in two directions. So I can also think of these as spiraling this way. And if I count the numbers of parallel rows here, if we'll count that as one, two, three, four, five, and back to the beginning. So there are eight in this direction, five in that direction. That's what you find throughout nature. Two consecutive Fibonacci numbers uh, composing the same structure. And what this does, what this number pattern does, is it gives perfect balance to the structure as it's growing. Not as a static structure, but these Fibonacci numbers and the spiral, the logarithmic organic spiral that occurs with them, uh, balances through growth, transformation, expansion. That's the beauty of this. It's balanced through growth and change through these numbers. It's an organic expansion from that, I'd say, zero seed to as large as you like, but it's always going to have a self-resembling property. The closest, the, the logarithmic spiral is the closest definition you can get to a definition of life. The Fibonacci numbers and the sacred geometry they produce seem to be the very voice of life. When we return, we'll see how these numbers were employed in ancient architecture to give life to the temples. As House of Life, consecrated to organic growth and the living world, it is difficult to imagine a more perfect template for the design of Karnak than those patterns governing and animating life itself. To further investigate the presence of the Fibonacci series in the design of Karnak, we went to UCLA campus in Los Angeles. We found a very rare print of a book containing architectural studies of sacred geometry and harmonic design in the temples and monoliths of ancient Egypt. The book is the master work of architectural historian Alexander Badawi. It shows the Temple of Karnak to be based upon the same Fibonacci number series that is the very voice of life. Yes, well, in, in this book of that harmonic design, uh, Alexander Badawi, the art historian and architectural historian, Egyptologist, um, determines that in the great temple of Karnak and just about everywhere else in Egypt, um, very sophisticated harmonic design is what's responsible for the temples, and it is that harmonic design that is in turn responsible the effect these temples produce. Um, in Karnak in particular, the Fibonacci series is employed in a variety of sophisticated and different ways 
and the fights of the Fibonacci series in particular is related to the golden section and to the processes of organic growth in this temple that is consecrated to the material universe or the, let's say, the animated universe. Particularly significant that the a, a mathematical proportion that is that is found everywhere in nature and the in the way that things grow from sunflower seeds to nautilus shells, this Fibonacci series should be employed to determine the various proportions of the temple itself. Where are those numbers here? As the temple expands from the original seed, each new stage of growth progresses according to the next increment of the Fibonacci series. 34, 55, 89, 144, 233, 377. These are the numbers, the ascending numbers of the Fibonacci series. Aside from its astrological implications, 
is an embodiment of the Fibonacci spiral in the shape of its horns. The sacred geometry of the Fibonacci series infused the entire temple, literally brought it to life. The temple is the living embodiment of the numbers and patterns that are the very voice of life. The harmonic design acted as a kind of template, affecting us, changing us, inspiring us, bridging the gap between the archetypal and physical worlds, bringing us into the mindset appropriate to commune with the deity or netto to which the temple was consecrated. When understood in the true meaning of netto, Anun becomes the archetype, the embodiment of the invisible forces, laws and forms of life the physical expression of the laws of nature. Rudolf Steiner, an influential modern mystic from the turn of the century, provides an insight into the thinking and sophistication of the ancients through a thought exercise. Hold a seed in one hand and a stone of similar size in the other. Look at them both and try to visualize how they are the same and how they are different. When the breakthrough occurs, we suddenly see into a higher dimension, the fourth dimension of growth. All living things live in an additional dimension of growth, expansion and organic change over time. As the living representation of the forces of life, the Temple of Karnak was itself alive. It existed in at least four dimensions. In a stunning but not isolated example of 4D architecture, the Temple itself not only grew, but grew in accordance with natural law. It was for a time host to Amun. It was animated by the wave of life continuous construction passed down through the centuries like a torch from one generation to the next. The wave of life passed through it as it did the successive generations of those who worship within its living walls. Uh, not only is it in a state of constant creation, I think the earliest extant bits of this temple go from the, take from the Middle Kingdom. Most of it is New Kingdom, some of it is Ptolemaic. And I believe that every single pharaoh has left some element or some piece of... Every, every single pharaoh did something here, some, some bit of construction. Starts as a group with the holy of holies, the sanctuary, and then grows out. But in this case, it grows out sort of like an onion. In other words, it's in layers. It goes continually out and out and out and out. They're all together, ten pylons here, I think six this way and four that way. So it's continually expanding. Each one has to have a stamp on, on this particular temple, not on other temples. Other temples are built often in one fell swoop, and then additions are made after one or two. But here, every single pharaoh does something or another. I think that's part of the overriding plan. This 500-year extended exercise in high magic. Karnak was a 500-year extended exercise in high magic. As each generation passes the torch to its successors, ensuring the continuity of human life, each generation continued the development of the temple, a 
according to the universal laws of growth. The individuals would come and go, but life itself continued. The house of life was the embodiment of this divine continuity. What kind of country, what kind of mind creates a blueprint that utilizes time as a dimension of the structure, perhaps as a function of the structure? Time itself was a necessary dimension of the faithful retelling, the faithful archetypal representation of this principle. Life is growth, and growth is a four-dimensional process. It was said that Egypt was made in the image of heaven. As above, so below. It is difficult to distinguish between witnessing the majesty and mystery of the temples and participating in the transformative process oneself. We are confronted by temples, by artwork, um, by pyramids, by structures that evoke in us a kind of emotion that is very hard to ascribe to mere superstition or romantification or romance. Um, and these temples are based upon principles that are in fact sacred sciences. They are, let us say, the science of immortality, the science of attaining eternal life. When we are in the presence of one of these Egyptian temples, we are, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, put into the presence of the divinity or the principle to which that temple is consecrated. And whether we like it or not, we respond often with awe and wonder. And this awe and wonder is not um, let us say an artifact of our susceptible imagination or romanticism on our, our part. It's an example of the high science of the ancients, a sacred science. The sacred science, the timeless wisdom of the mystery schools. The keys to powerful magic are being preserved, enshrined behind a veil of harmony, proportion, myth, and symbolism. When seen through the symbolist decoder, these ancient ruins suddenly spring to life, opening a window on a bizarre landscape of arcane magic, working hand in hand with a science of bewildering complexity. Was the high science of the ancients an inheritance from an even earlier civilization. Join us next time as the investigation unfolds. That was John Anthony West's Magical Egypt Episode 1, <clears throat> Introduction to the Series, eight-part series. As I said, I did purchase this a while ago. 
I don't know why that all turned off. But it's a, it's incredible. It's amazing. Just the depth of it and how esoteric, you know, how understood by very few this series is in that he, he just incorporates everything like mathematics, geometry, you know, Plato, Aristotle. Just it's, a, it's an amazing series, this Magical Egypt. So I hope that you did enjoy this. And uh, yeah, let's uh, let's get into it. Namaste. And namaste. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com.